first one here. According to the notes, we need to first have Scripture authenticated to us, not use us, as such, before we can take our standpoint in them. That's false. Now, we did say that, that those are the words that Warfield used, but we said it was wrong. So, so that's the, I guess that was the tricky part he was in. It is in the notes, but uh, as a bad example. <laughs> so... Okay, so again, that's the point here. When we when we're giving the gospel out, when we're sharing our sharing our faith, we don't have to prove the Bible is true before we can start using it. Uh, we, we it is our it is our benchmark or standard of truth. Number two, then, we rightly hold Roman the Roman Catholic approach in deep suspicion because the Bible is very critical of tre- creeds and traditions. False. That's false. Now, the first part is true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we hold the Roman Catholic approach in deep suspicion, uh, but the second part is false because the Bible is very commending of creeds and traditions. Uh, Paul, as, he, as Bill just pointed out here in First Corinthians eleven, to commended them for their uh, adherence to the the traditions. Uh, the good the good minister is established in the traditions that you have followed and such hold firm to the paradosis, the traditions, the teachings that we passed on to you. So apparently they did have traditions and they had creeds. Not so much commended as such, but actually woven into the scriptures. Of, uh, short uh, belief statements, credos, as it were, that uh, uh, that we find that probably were recited in the early church. So uh, those things are a, an appropriate approach of the church. Uh, they can they can uh, become the tail that wags the dog. At the same time, the, the scripture is is quite approving of them in general. Okay. Number three, what's what's soul liberty? I didn't actually define it anywhere, but you should should have been able to sort of piece it together from the uses there. Anyone have the answer on that one? <laughs> right track here. I, I was wondering if that meant that uh, we don't need anybody to teach us yeah. because the Holy Spirit. Right. Each one of us has an individual, and it's often as individual soul liberty, so that each of us as individuals has the capacity and the and the uh, you know the re- re- regenerate mind uh, that enables us to read the scriptures and understand its, its basic content. Doesn't mean we don't need teachers in a in a in an absolute sense, or don't need books and and uh, traditions and creeds and such. Uh, at the same time, uh, God gives each believer uh, the ability to to not only to understand the meaning, but also to apply the uh, the scriptures that we have given to us. So that's slightly different than priesthood of the believer, right? Yeah, those are yeah. The priesthood of the believer is everyone can individually approach God in prayer without the intermediation of a priest, human priest. Yeah, sometimes those are confused. Uh, oftentimes those are you know, interchanged in, in discussions, uh, but uh, they're they're both Baptist distinctives or so called. You know, when you say Baptist distinctives, I was thinking. Wouldn't a guy like Luther, I don't know if he ever said so liberty, but it's sort of inherent right. in 
if you're going to let people look at the scriptures themselves, there's sort of an inherent. I think Baptists haven't really announced soul liberty, didn't they? But right, yeah. When when I think when I think of the Baptist distinctives, I don't think of each one of them as individually a Baptist distinctive, but the collection. Collection, okay. Because biblical authority is usually the first one. There's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of yeah. Protestants that hold to biblical authority yeah. that aren't Baptist. But do you read soul liberty in in uh, a reform? Not not usually because because like we said that's that's they've got a more of an ecclesiastical exactly. approach to exactly. theology. Exactly. Yeah. Where the Baptists have always had that sort of that maverick strain. Yeah. They're 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 sort of yeah butting up against some of these yeah. creeds and confessions that are out exactly there. yeah. And the last one here. We must never let our system of theology inform our interpretation of Scripture. False. Okay, all of you have false. That's, yeah, we, we may allow... Yeah, I had too many negatives in there. I actually did a double take. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. It is, that's false. Uh, our system of theology does come around to inform us because if it's carefully made, put together, pieced together as as it ought to have been from the scriptures themselves, then that, that creates a, a block of material that can help us in the unclear passages that we encounter. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. So my quiz is getting any easier? Must because I got all those right. <laughs> Uh, uh, I never heard the soul. Yeah, I, I mentioned it on uh, 24. The New Testament validates the Baptist distinctive of individual soul liberty, and all the verses were commending people for reading the scriptures themselves and checking up on their teachers. So, but we I mean, you read it more in Baptist literature. Yes, you do. I was just saying that if you believe that. You know, like Luther did and Calvin did, that believers can interpret Scripture for themselves. They should have a Bible. If you want to put the Bible in in the, in the language of the people, then you have an inherent belief in soul liberty. But as we were saying, because of the ecclesiastical structure, the reform groups, Luther and others, don't trust the individuals quite as much as Baptists or congregationalists tend to, I think. Don't you think that makes it? Well, and I think it has to do some t- somewhat with the uh, polity, too. Yeah. Because they're, they're not set up as a regenerate church membership. No. There's there's unbelievers in in Lutheran and Reformed <clears throat> churches, and that's 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 acceptable to their to their approach, and that's so, so the the guardianship of the of the church is not at the level of the membership; it's at the level of the eldership. But it so. seems like I see a lot of. I'm going to start a church and someone hangs a shingle out. But well, that, yeah, yeah, that's, that's that's hard to do in a Presbyterian. Yeah, and so. that's that's the disadvantage of individual soul liberty. You can go to seed on it. I don't need to. I don't need to be taught by anybody. I can just open my Bible and study it, and I can open my church and go there. So my and, kids did. They had a friend that. Yeah, they're starting a church, and I was like, "They have absolutely no training." Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is the that is the word. Right, can go astray there. You know? Whereas you'd never see an, an indi- you know, yeah. we talk about independent Baptist churches. We never, uh-uh. we would never have an in- independent Presbyterian church or an independent Lutheran church. They're all they're all 
they're all interconnected. The connection and almost all Baptist churches are independent in that sense. In the sense that I could, you could go out tomorrow, start a church, and then join the Southern Baptist Convention very shortly, and you'd be a Southern Baptist church, even though really they would take you absolutely. No, no. <laughs> no, they wouldn't look. They wouldn't care. <laughs> I mean, if you were an Orthodox church, you had an Orthodox creed. As long as you were given some it, money, you wouldn't. They don't. They don't. They don't say you give them money. They wouldn't. They wouldn't care if you had any training or not. It wouldn't make any difference. That's just the Baptist. Because my son said, "Well, the apostles didn't have training." I said, "Think again." <laughs> the best training of all, and they they were with their teacher yeah. night and day. Yeah, did he go online and get his you know certificate? I, I know a guy that did that just so he could marry his friends. They asked yeah, me to do this. This isn't like that, but so, come on, really? Well, you never know. Okay, well, we're changing, we're switching gears tonight. Uh, we're sort of at the midpoint of the class. Well, not quite the midpoint of the class, but our sort of our 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 hinge point in the class. So we're here in part two. So our first part was the introduction. Part two is the doctrine of scripture. There is a part three that's brief, which is more of an introduction to dispensationalism, which is sort of a it's more of an appendix to. The doctrine of Scripture. It is. It's a discussion of how the Scriptures are organized. Uh, so it's it's part three. You might even call it part two a. But this is this is the lion's. This is the largest section of the notes, and where where we want to spend the bulk of our time from this point forward. Okay. So we're talking about the doctrine of Scripture, and, uh, and you might ask, why did we start with that, not with the doctrine of God? And you know, there's. There's a case to be made with starting with the doctrine of God, uh, because you know, you know, in, in philosophy, ontology precedes epistemology. But there's the real the reason we know anything about God, concrete, is because we have the scriptures. So it seems logical to me to start there with the with the scriptures. Um, my organizational structure there is in those bullet points on page 29, and we're going to basically follow a, you know, a, uh, a, yeah, the, the, the order of transmission uh, when you're when you're you're speaking and receiving information. So we'll start with this idea of revelation, which is the transmission of divine truth. God instigates the transmit transmission of divine truth he speaks and uh, then it is brought into an authoritative record uh, which will be our second discussion then uh, which will be inspiration so how does god take this revelation this this you know this conglomerate of all the information that he gives to us how does he bring it all into a a an authoritative you know, somewhat compact record uh, that uh, is sufficient for life and godliness. Then we'll talk about preservation, that is, how is this then preserved and perpetuated for generations to come. Then we'll talk about, now, now, now that, now that we've, we've moved to the other side of the... Uh, of the transmission process. Now we're into the reception process. How is it that we receive the information, which is two-part? Uh, there's interpretation and illumination. Okay, so the by 
by illumination, uh, we, we receive the truth of God, the scriptures, as true. We, 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 uh, our, our hostility towards God is, is suppressed by uh, the regenerative work of God so that we receive it, welcome the word. And, uh, and here we're also going to have a discussion of, of the certainty of divine truth. Talk here a little bit about canonicity. How do we know what is the Bible and what isn't the Bible? Uh, so it, it may be a little bit artificial to squeeze it in here, but I think it I think it fits. And then interpretation, which we don't actually have a, a long discussion of, only because you have you have your whole class on that is, is Bible study methods. Uh, but we'll just mention it just in passing, just to complete the uh, complete the. Uh, the process here okay so that's going to be our outline here moving forward over the next six eight weeks or so i'm not going to go through this bibliography entirely here but uh, perhaps a few things uh, jump off the page here uh, of course your textbook is thomas thomas doctrine of the word of god again it's a it's a very it's a very uh you know economical little introduction to the Word of God. And almost every one of the topics we're going to be talking about in this class has a chapter in that book. It's it's very nicely done. Um, and it's and it's accessible. It's 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 compact and it's accessible. So it's it's a really nice it's a really nice book to use for this kind of a setting. If you really want to uh, see the same kind of book, the same kind of arrangement here in something a little bit more robust uh, what, what I use at seminary is John Frame's Doctrine of the Word of God. For many years, we really didn't have a good textbook on bibliology, and uh, now we do. So, 2010, that was put out, and, and since then, this is we, we went to not having a good seminary textbook. To of all the heads of, of theology, now probably this is our best our best uh, textbook uh, that we have. So it's very well done. Most of the books here that you find here are deal with pieces of bibliology. So you'll find books on inspiration. You'll talk, see books on canonicity, uh, books on hermeneutics, uh, and and so on and so forth. But very few books actually have a nice, you know, trim chapter on each of those topics to give you an overall overview of the uh, of the topic. Um, there's also a lot of collections of essays along the way too. Uh, there's been, you know, windows in the history of the church where um, it has become necessary to address one of these issues because, uh, you know, there's there's you know something has happened within within the church to threaten one of these doctrines. And you find a lot of collections of essays here. Uh, Carson and Woodbridge have two of them here. Uh, back in the 40s, you have some uh, that were done by the folks at Westminster, Edward J. Young, that word is truth, is, is one of those. Uh, Stonehouse has one as well. Um, Warfield goes back even further. I know the date on that says 1948, but that's not when he wrote it. He died in 1929, so... Uh, but this is this is a collection largely of his essays uh, in response to the problem of of liberalism, uh, modernism uh, in the church and its denial of the historicity of the Word of God. 
and uh, so this is this is a long been a, uh, a, a pillar of, of of bibliology here. But it is dated. It's 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 addressing a problem that still exists, but not to the degree it did uh, back when he was writing. A um, few others here: D. A. Carson's Enduring Authority of the Christian Scriptures is a nice collection of essays. It's pretty new. Um, Kevin DeYoung's book, Taking God at His Word, is a is a is a helpful little introduction to bibliology as well. Not as good as Thomas, I don't believe, but still still pretty helpful. Um, yeah, you use the NIV here, right? Yes. Yeah. So there's a there's a there's one I didn't put in here. Perhaps it would be. You know, Ken Barker has a book on the accuracy of the, of the NIV, which is helpful. A lot of folks, you know, I think, erroneously suggest that the NIV is not accurate because it's not a word-for-word translation. And I think uh, Ken Barker does a very good job of of addressing that as a as a as a misunderstanding of, of, of translation philosophy. We'll talk a little bit about that when we get there. What uh, we we don't spend a great deal of time, but we'll talk a little bit about translation and uh, and how inspiration affects our choice of translations um, and a couple of other factors too. We don't spend a lot of time there, but a little bit. Got a couple of couple of books here on King James Version debate, which still which still soldiers on here, unfortunately. Um, Seems now that the battle lines have been drawn. They don't. You don't see the, the. You don't see as many expressions of this debate, the heated debates going on. It seems like you know, the battle lines have been drawn, and, and no longer is the uh, fighting going on. But do you get into the? You, you mentioned the wrong thing in the in the wrong church, and you'll you'll find out that uh, people still have very strong opinions on this. Uh, to also this inclusive language debate here, I put Carson's as well. I think he does a pretty good job there um, uh, with that, which is a, another issue entirely with Bible translation. Uh, I think Carson does a pretty good job, better than than Grudem, for instance, and Poitras, uh, who who I think go a little bit too far uh, in trying to preserve, you know, an absolute. An absolute gender equivalency as you work your way through. We'll talk a little bit about that too along the way. Okay. Any any questions about any of the books that are here or not here that perhaps you wanted to know more about? Where's what's Frame's background? Frame's reformed. Yeah, he's a, he was at he was at Westminster East for probably about twenty years, and then he went to Westminster West and was there for almost twenty years. Nice. I think he's fully retired now, but uh, in fact, he's in very poor health, as I understand it. But uh, but he's he's reformed. Okay, so let's talk. Start here with Revelation, which technically is is more than just bibliology. And I, I know I said this is a doctrine of scripture, but we sort of have to set the table here by talking about Revelation in general. Um, because it, that's a, it's a topic that's a little bit bigger than just the Bible. Uh, so what's our definition here? Revelation is God's disclosure of facts and idea ideas about his person and purposes. 
Okay, so it's disclosure of facts. It's not the dis- it's not our discovery of facts from below. It's his disclosure of facts from above uh, about himself, about what he's doing, what his expectations are of us, etc. So that's revelation. It's a fairly simple definition. Um, let's talk a little bit about this revelation, though, because there's 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 perhaps a little under the surface that we need to to discuss. I start off by saying, first of all, that it's by nature objective and propositional. A revelation from God comes to man primarily in the form of statements, sentences, subject, predicate statements with intrinsic, discernible, verifiable meanings. It comes to us for the most part in words, not entirely, uh, but uh, uh it comes to us in words. And even that material that we get from God that doesn't come in words has to be verbalized uh, in order for us to make sense of it. I mean, there, there is a revelation of God as you, you know, walk outside and look at a tree, for instance. You, you, you learn something about the nature and character of God. But in order for that to be useful, it's got to be put into words. Uh, you, you, it's, it's not just an object it's not just an object lesson about God. Uh, we, we actually have to put it into words to make sense of it. Uh, so the heavens declare, and there's words here, God is glorious. Uh, the creation communicates that God is powerful, that God is just from the, cre- from the creation of the world. Uh, people know God's eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse here. And so... There's a, I mean, even that word "without excuse" implies that they understand that there's something from which they need to be excused. Okay, uh, you know, a, a penalty, a, a justice, which he goes on to say there in the, Latin, the latter verses of that that chapter, that knowing the command, the decree of God, that this list of vices is wrong. In fact, so wrong that it's deserving of death. They not only do them, but actually give hearty approval to those who do. So. Uh, so that creation communicates specific things about God and uh, our consciences. Same thing. We are the, which alternately accuse and defend us. That same passage speaks of. Uh, this is this is in a sense a, a revelatory information. God reveals his expectations in the form of our consciences. But in order for the, for us that to be of any use to us, we have to verbalize it. We have to say this is right, this is wrong, etc. So uh, it's objective, it's propositional. It's not something that's simply just out there by means of some sort of a personal experience or encounter. That's how a lot of people think about religion, right? You know, religion, and we talked about that earlier in this in the course here that. A lot of people you talk to have have you know they they have their ideas about about religion what's and, and what what is about God and and his expectations and you start talking to them about it and and saying oh, this is right this is wrong this is what the Bible says and they'll look at you quizzically and say well I don't really care what the Bible says because I religion is a personal personal relationship or an encounter that I have with God and so uh, that, that 
all those words are relevant. What I have is is a relationship. And you have found something. Even even some good folks sometimes speak in this term. You know that that uh, Christianity is not a it's not a religion. It's a relationship. Those two really can't be pitted against one another. Um, religion is a system of reliance. If I can put it that way, that's where, where the uh, religion comes from. It, it's a the term. It's 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 what we understand to be true, and we rely upon these basic understandings of what is in order to make sense of our world. So it's a religion. I mean, the Bible, the Christian religion, is in fact a religion. It's also a relationship, but it's but but we should not reduce it to strictly some sort of an existential relationship that we have. You know, as we're as we're driving the car. You know, keep from here, from point A to point B. That's it's it's more than that. It's revelation. There's 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 revelation here that's involved. So I say here, this sharply is at odds with the idea that truth is wrapped up in a person or event that is accessed through existential encounter and never by phenomenal instruments such as language. When I say the word phenomenal. Um, it's not like wow phenomenal. Uh, I'm, I'm using a term fairly technically here. Um, in, uh, in 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 Kantian thinking, there is uh, there's a there's a there's a line on top of which there's the the noumenal realm, which is the realm of the mind, and then there's the phenomenal realm, which is the the realm of stuff material. Okay, so the physical, and and so his so. So what what actually comes out of Kant and Bart, you know, really follows in his train here is that in order for us to know God, words can't communicate God. Words are a they're, they're a human invention, and so words are incapable of communicating God. Uh, Bible's valuable to a to a point, but. Realize that these. This is a. These are. This is. This is a human book of human origin, written in human language, that does its best to explain. You know. Uh, you know. Give. Give. You know. A collection of of people's encounters with God. You know. As they explain their own encounters with God. To to really know God, you don't actually read the Bible per se. There's usefulness in it, but you you know God by having your own encounter. Your own personal encounter, and that's where true religion lies. Uh, but that's but that's an incorrect understanding. Hopefully, you, you recognize that already. But let, let's see if we can tease out why it's why it's wrong. Can I ask a yeah, question? Yeah, go ahead. When you ref- when you say this is sharply and it has an ambivalent, yeah. what are we referring to? Uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, the idea, yeah, that is not clear, right? Um, it, it's it, the the idea. Uh, that a revelation is objective and propositional in point one. It's not subjective and existential. Uh, it's it's uh, it's objective and propositional. So I I I, I yeah I, so I, we're I, saying I, revelation by nature. Yes, God's is, revelation in Scripture is not objective and propositional. It is. It is. Okay. It is objective and right. propositional. It comes to us in words okay. and sentences. So which we're, is we're which is opposite than the idea that uh, that revelation is simply an existential encounter. Okay. 
Yeah, I, that that wasn't clear. I should have. I should. I should make that clear. So the the problem with that understanding that that revelation is strictly a subjective phenomenon that's wrapped up in an existential encounter that each one of us has with God and and uh, you know we we then write our own religion as it were. What are the problems with it? First of all, it has an unbiblical view of human language. Okay, remember the 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 understanding that Bart has is these words they're they're human they're. Words are a human invention, and we've just sort of invented these these signs that we've put on a page in order to you know muddle through. But that's not where language comes from. Where does language come from? We're created. Yeah, we're we're recreated as linguistic beings. Yeah, Adam didn't learn to speak; he spoke. <clears throat> He had this capacity for human language. We call it human language, but there's a sense in which, you know, it's it's received from God. You know, this the concept of language. I, I recognize that we can develop new languages that are part of human invention. But the idea of language, and in fact the very first language, comes to us from God for the very purpose of revealing himself. So it is an adequate medium for communicating truth about God. It is the it is the very means God had, God uh, prescribed to communicate information about about Him. Okay. In fact, you know, I, I know this 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 may sound a little bit abstract, but this is one of my greatest concerns with evolutionary theory. Uh, if if evolutionary theory is correct, and we you know we progressed from bugs and toads to to where we are today and and you know the language that we you know, started out with some whistles and whinnies and <laughs> and bass and, and such and we finally you know pieced it together into something a little bit more sophisticated and abstract uh, well if if that were the case then language would be an inadequate medium for communicating truth about God but that's not how language comes. You know, language came directly to Adam in a very mature form. Okay, and so the words that we have in front of us are 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 capable of communicating truth about God. Now, of course, we don't have all. It's not. It's not as though we have a comprehensive knowledge of God uh, from what we have in the Scriptures. Nonetheless, we have a true and real and sufficient information about God. Uh, that uh, that comes to us in the form of the Bible, so we can never we can never look at the Bible and say this is really an inadequate uh, means of of knowing God. It is it is the it is the means that God has proposed here. He's planned uh, to communicate Himself. Okay. Number two, then I think uh, if we uh, if we view truth as wrapped up in person or event and a subject and existential understanding. It moves meaning out of the objective and into the subjective realm. I, I get to participate in defining my understanding of God and of what I ought to be doing. And that's always a very dangerous thing. Okay? It allows the receiver not only to interpret, but also to establish meaning. Uh, I mean, if, 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 if what I know of religion, I know through a private, personal subjective encounter in which I participate, then there's a sense in which I 
participate in crafting out my own religion. Okay, and that's 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 a that's a that's a problem. Concrete authority is really vested nowhere. It seems to reside most consistently in the human psyche. I feel God. I met him. I encountered him. So I feel God's presence according to some existential moment of my own personal fabrication. Rather than knowing his favor according to objective obedience to the presupp- the propositional commands and trust in his promises. Okay, That's what we have in the scriptures. And so it grounds the Christian religion in such a way, in a way uh, that is inadequately done by religions that are of an existential nature. And, uh, you know, I, I, I can't, I can't say enough how, how we, how the, how our culture has privatized and personalized, uh, religion so that, you know, we can't, talk about it with one another. You have your religion and I have mine. And you really can't tell me anything that I need to do because my religion's a personal matter. Okay? And it's I think it's a clever device of Satan uh, really to to keep to 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 sort of to to inhibit uh, the, uh, the the task of evangelism. And we have to get over that. We have to get past that in our in in our uh, evangelism. Well, nowadays it can be considered a hostile workplace. Yeah, yeah, it can be. Yeah, you have to be careful where you do it, yeah. and whose time and such, right? Yeah, and and that's that's how persecution starts, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's probably not going to stop there. Yeah, it's going to be hate speech, and it's going to be a felony, and then it, you know it's going to it's going to worsen, undoubtedly. Okay. I say here that illumination is necessary for a person to embrace revelation. So there is something that God has to do to us in order that we read the Bible correctly. That is, not just knowing what the meaning is, but also embracing it as truth and something that should, should uh, you know, guide my life. But this does not detract from its propositional objectivity. The words still have an absolute and fixed meaning. Uh, what God does in me in illumination is not, you know, somehow make these words come alive in some sort of a, an abstract sense. What it does is, is allows me to look at these words and say, yeah, that's true. And because it's true, I'm going to pour into their meaning and, and apply them accurately in my life. Okay, so uh, so it's not the revelation itself that is subjective. The revelation is objective. It's on these words on a page, uh, but the human reception of it, there is a subjective element. God does something to me; He regenerates me, so that I will read the Bible uh, with a with a with an eye to to application. Okay, so revelation is propositional and uh, and uh, even that which is not explicitly propositional has to be rendered propositional in order for it to be useful to us and it is then secondly by nature received and not discovered there's a there's a there's a fine line here to be drawn here between what we discover 
through, say, science, for instance, you know, we can, you know, we can piece together information and data from our from our, you know, our, our, our various uh, our studies and inductive studies and, and scientific endeavors, we can come up with information that's that's true, but that's not properly revelation. Now, revelation is something that comes to us directly from God. Okay, so it's received. Uh, God has God puts it out to gives it to us in 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 its form. And then we accept it. We don't discover it discursively or, or through uh, through a, a process of learning. Now, this concept of revelation is wrapped up primarily in the Hebrew word gala, which actually means to be naked. Okay, so God, you know, this, the word revelation is, you know, we, we even speak of, you know, we, we sometimes even use that language. Someone revealed himself. Well, what, what it, it's 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 the concept here of nakedness, and it's rather a graphic term uh, that implies here the removal of obstacles to perception. Okay, and that's the purpose of revelation. It's to make God known to us. It's not to conceal truth. I think uh, you know, particularly when you when you come to uh, some some scripture and you you hear it explained in a way that no one ever has before and. Someone says, "Well, this is really complicated. You probably can't understand it." it you know, I, you know, I, I'm always a little bit uh, hesitant with that because the point of revelation is to reveal, it's to make plain, it's to remove obstacles to perception, <laughs> so that we understand God better. Okay, there's a, a word we're going to use later on, a perspicuity to the Bible, which is a, one of the funniest words, I think, in all of theology because the word means clarity. And it's one of the most unclear words that's out there, right? Perspicuity, uh, but uh, but there's a clarity to the Word of God uh, that that makes it accessible, makes it accessible. Uh, so it has to do with what God does from above to penetrate our human sensibilities, not to what we do with our hard work to learn something from below to penetrate the mysteries of God. So natural revelation is to be distinguished from natural theology. What do I mean by those terms? There's revelation in nature. I learn things uh, on the, you know, when I look outside, I can, I can, I can explode by saying, well, God is glorious. Okay. That, and that is because it's been revealed to me. I can also do science. You know, I can, you know, I can slice things up and look at it under a microscope and take a telescope and, you know, piece some of this information together and, and come to conclusions, experiment and, and repeat the experimentation and do all that and come to conclusions. And, and, that, and it's all well good. But that's not revelation then. Okay, at that point it is, it is, it is, uh, it is, it is what I've done with the revelation and, and built from it. So, when I, when, and, and there is no such thing, I, I would say, as a natural theology. Okay, so we can take the Bible and look at the words, and we can build a systematic theology. That's what we're doing in here, right? So we can build a system of thought that is actually that actually says more than what the specific verses of Scripture say. Um, we might be able to try to do that with natural revelation. Uh, but uh, 
you can never come up with a whole system of theology that integrates and incorporates all truth. Okay, uh, so you can come up with knowledge, facts, information through science that you know is true, but but uh, don't imagine that we can build an entire theology and uh, and and understand who God is and what his expectations for us are strictly by looking at the birds in the sky and the trees. Yeah, that's that's the, the natural revelation we have is inadequate for building a natural theology. Okay. Because the natural man's gonna suppress the truth and come to the wrong conclusion. Right, yeah. So so not only do we have the problem of there not being enough information there and it not being in propositional form but well, we also have the hardness of man's heart to take a look at that information and say i'm going to you know i'm going to exchange the god that stands behind this for a lie for something like you else said, stephen hawkins is supposed yes. to be one of the smartest men there is but he's a fool right okay probably turn the heat off somebody's getting warm over there yeah. If I knew it that if I knew it was that simple, I would have done that a long time ago. <laughs> I was trying to make it feel like Florida. Yeah, I thought maybe I had to throw a chair through a window or something. <laughs> well, now you know. <laughs> okay, so that's that's what revelation is. Any questions here up till this point? Okay, then knowing what revelation is, how do we classify it? Okay, revelation comes to God in various ways. Hebrews 1 says, God who spoke in various times and in various ways has in these last days spoken to us through his Son. Okay, so revelation doesn't come all at once and it doesn't all come in the same, you know, the same exact way. We, we get it from various sources. We tend to categorize this revelation into two broad classes which are called general and special or perhaps specific revelation. So these are the two categories of revelation we'll, we want to discuss here. The Bible is in the latter category. Okay, It's spe- special or specific uh, information of God from God. But we have to examine the former in order to really understand where the latter comes from. So general revelation, first of all. General revelation is God's public witness of himself to all men without distinction. So so general has both of those senses. It's a public witness to all men without distinction. I say distinction because some not everyone gets all of the same general revelation. But God is not discriminatory with it. He doesn't you know, withhold uh, his general re- revelation from certain classes of people. Uh, it's 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 broadcast, and anyone who can see it uh, can can receive it. So it's 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 given to all men without distinction. Now, depending on who you're looking at, you know, which source you're looking at, this this idea of general uh, can have two different meanings. Uh, both of them make good sense, and uh, you know, I. Typically, when you use a word, you mean only one thing by it. At the same time, uh, both of these understandings have sort of come into common usage 
such that we almost have general revelation meaning both of these things here. Uh, it gives us a general knowledge of God. So the general revelation, the natural revelation that we receive as we walk outside, gives us some basic truths about God. God's glorious. He's eternal. He's powerful. He's he's righteous, according to Romans 1, is something we can pick up. But it doesn't give us specific information that we need in order to have a right relationship with him. We, we don't know by looking at a tree uh, that that uh, we've sinned against a holy God, and so Jesus had to be virgin, born, live a sinful life, die a bloody death, and rise from the dead for our salvation. I mean, that, that, you just can't get that. That's, mm-hmm. Some have some have attempted over there. There's a book, Gospel in the Store. Stars came out during the seventies. Actually, Philip Bob Jones wrote it, and he, he his his his, uh, his understanding was that you could look at the constellations and the stars and you could actually piece together the gospel story from the stars themselves. It's, that's, it's poppycock. It's ridiculous. It's, it's, it, it can't be done. General revelation doesn't give us uh, the information that we need with that level of specificity. So it's general in that sense. D. James Kennedy? Did he do something like that too? D. James Kennedy believed that. Oh, did he? He had the sermons. I already preached the sermons. You know D. James Kennedy? Uh, I've already preached a sermon on the gospel in the stars. Hmm. Well, Stuart Custer is the one I'm thinking yeah. of here. He had, he had, yeah, that's right. very strange for a reformed guy to right. gospel in the stars. See, I, I was thinking that as we become more modern and urbanized, we see less of God's creation. I mean, we're in, <laughs> I mean, I can't see the stars. I can't. I mean, it, I was out in Arizona once. We got where it was dark, and yeah. it's amazing. I mean, um, just our cup. Just because of the way we live, I think we've lost a lot of... There's a lot of snow out there piled up, as you can see. <laughs> yeah, but most that's, of that's the judgment. <laughs> that's the result of the, result of the fall. <laughs> we know there was no snow in, in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> well, we know. I mean, they were naked, right? <laughs> but, I mean, we've removed ourselves from death. We don't... You know, on a farm, they knew they had to kill something. I mean, we've... We're so sterile from... From the original. I mean, it just doesn't show up in the meat market. No, I guess not. (laughs) Yeah, so it's general in that sense. It gives us a general information about God, but not the specific information we need for a a whole religion. And it's supplied then to mankind generally. That is, it's not to say that all people everywhere get every bit of general revelation, but all people have access to general revelation all people have 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 some general revelation it's not it's not you know earmarked for specific people um, it's not it's not i say here it's not deliberately restrictive of god or based on any sort of artificial distinctions i'm only going to give general revelation to this class of people so it's it's general in both those senses. It gives us general information, and it's available to all men generally. And depending on what book on bibliology you're reading, one or one or the other may be emphasized. Uh, but I've I've come to a point where I can't tell which one was the original thought and which one is the uh, which one is the interloper, and both are true. So I've I've made a two part, you know, meaning here of general revelation. So what's its what what are the primary vehicles of it? Well, first of all, 
In fact, we'll, we'll just go to uh, Romans, because I think this is the one place where we can see them both. Uh, Romans uh, 1 tells us, a rather extended passage here, about how we can get general revelation from the material creation. Starting in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. What truth? Well, what may be known about God, which is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for from the creation of the world, there's a question as to whether that's a temporal or a source, Sarah, I, I don't know where you are on that, but either since the creation of the world or from the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen and understood by what has been made so that they are without excuse. I mean, there's a lot in there, okay? Not only gives us something of the content of that general revelation, uh, but the, uh, but the, but the, but the uh, effect of it, okay? We, we know something about God's invisible qualities. I mean, there's a, there's a sort of a paradox here. We can see God's invisible qualities. They're clearly seen, his invisible qualities. Um, and it gives a few of them here. His power, his divine nature, and the fact that there is some sort of a righteous standard associated with God because we are without excuse. Okay, um, That is, we, we stand under his judgment. So there's something about the righteousness of God that is communicated here uh, by by creation, okay, and then then talks talks a little bit more about uh, about uh, how we actually <coughs> make the revelation into the object of our worship, uh, or or unbelievers do. Okay, so the material creation, uh, Psalm nineteen, another classic passage here: the heavens declare the glory of God, and the work of His hands. Uh, you know, it says there, there's no speech, there is no language, their voice is not heard, and yet their voice goes out to the ends of the world. Okay, so this is, this is information that we learn about God from the, from the material creation. Um, we also find something about a general revelation in man's own constitution. And this shouldn't surprise us because man is the image of God. And I, and I deliberately word it that way. Oftentimes we uh, we word that that man is in the image of God, which is itself unobjectionable. But more accurately, we are the image of God. That is, there's something about us that tells us what God is like. Uh, we are we we are. We are analogous to God's, uh, to God, and so we, and so we know something of God by looking at ourselves. Okay, is is the idea here? No, I want to go too far with that, but but I think that's the idea of the image of God. Okay, Psalm one thirty nine. We look at ourselves, and we are able to exclaim with the uh, psalmist, "I will praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made." Okay, so I learned something about the about the uh, intricate and, and careful nature of God from the uh, from 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 me from looking at me uh, and and then the conscience is also here and this is this is why we're still in Romans uh, so 
We'll start actually in chapter 1, verse 32, but then we'll move to chapter 2. Although they, these are, these are unbelievers who know God, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do these things, and he's referencing this list that starts in verse uh, 28 and 29, all kinds of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventing ways of doing evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. So this is the list here. They know God's righteous decree that those who do these things deserve death. They not only continue to do them, but also approve of those who practice them. So there's something that we know about the righteous nature of God. Uh, we know that certain things are right and wrong. How do we know? Well, we know. <laughs> uh, in, in part, it says from nature. I mean, how, how do we know that homosexuality is wrong here in this passage? It says here it, it's it's something that is against nature. It is unnatural. Okay, and I, I don't think it's. I don't think that's a, I, I, I've been thinking about this lately. I, I, I don't think that's a statement here of, of biologically unnatural, but that it's unnatural in that it does not perpetuate the human race and fulfill the function of sexuality. We should recognize that homosexuality cannot produce children such that we are fruitful and multiply and perpetrate the human race. That's that's the unnaturality of it. And and we should be able to see that, okay, that it's unnatural to do these things. But also, we have inside of us, written upon our hearts, a conscience. And we go now to chapter 2 here, verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who don't have the law, they don't have the law of Moses, they don't have the the biblical record, they don't have the propositional data from God that gives specifics, they don't have the law, still do by nature things required by the law. Well, how do they know? How do they know what to do? Well, because they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Okay, now that, that's not a law unto themselves, which is condemned elsewhere. They, but there's a law; they are a law for themselves. What does he mean by that? Well, verse fifteen, because they show that the requirements of the law have been written on their very hearts, with their consciences bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now defending them. Okay, and, then, and this will take place when God judges the world. Okay, so. So, so there's, there's, there's certain things that can be known by general revelation, by looking inside, not only in a general sense, looking at the intricacy with which we are made, but also by looking inside and finding out uh, what, what is right and wrong, and how do we know what's right and wrong? Because, you know, we're, we're, we, we become pre-programmed with a conscience that tells us what's right and wrong. I've, now, and, and it comes here, that this, 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 this app that's inside of us, right? This this conscience that's inside of us comes with pre-programmed with data. Now it's open source, right? We can actually rewrite the uh, we can re- we can re- we can feed new data to it 
such that it actually starts sending the wrong signals to us. We can have our consciences seared as with a hot iron. But that takes time. Uh, people, you know, uh, people intrinsically have consciences that send the right signals. It takes it takes time to dull the conscience and to sear it as with a hot iron. Uh, it takes time to do that because and and so we we all come with some basic knowledge about God's ethical expectations, God's moral expectations, because they're written upon the table of our heart. This is this is general revelation. That is, everyone has it. You know, it's it's available to all men without distinction. In this case, without exception, really. Okay. So, what do we know by this general revelation? Well. There's some debate as to how much we can know, um, and 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 I and I'm going to say here that that's really doesn't cause me too much loss of sleep at night. The to not knowing exactly how much because that's not the, the critical issue. We do know specific thing: God exists. God is. He's eternal. He's powerful. He's righteous. He will judge evil. All of these things have been pretty plainly pointed out here in Romans. But the critical issue here is not so much a comprehensive list of what general revelation includes, but what it excludes. There are certain things that are not included in general revelation. For instance, we've said this already, general revelation tells mankind nothing about the redemptive grace of God, the true character of sin, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the needed means for repentance and faith unto forgiveness, or or information about the afterlife. We don't get any of that from general revelation. We have to have the Bible for that. So, to wrap this up, general revelation, why, why do we get this information? Well, I say, first of all, it's a pre-theology of sorts. It grants all people an innate recognition of the voice of God in Scripture. Okay, so so people... Here, here's what ought to happen. You know, and I think we'll follow the pattern of, of, of Psalm 19. Remember, uh, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, firmament shows his handiwork, and there's about six verses here that talk about the, what we know from nature. And then verse 7, perhaps seemingly rather abruptly, switches thoughts. And then it's the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. And, and you know, all the verses of that, you know, did you sing that song when you were kids? You know, more to be desired. Well, maybe not. But, <laughs> but, uh, but, but I think what we're seeing there in Psalm 19 is what ought to happen. And if we were an unfallen society, what would happen? We go outside, see the spectacular glories of God. We see uh, the handiwork of God. And then when we open up our Bibles, we actually hear the voice of God. We know that this, this, that same God, you know, that, that, that ought to be what happens. Now, because of depravity, that doesn't occur. Um, or perhaps it's, it's, it certainly is muted. Uh, we take that, that information we have about God and exchange it, suppress it, certainly. Uh, but that's really what ought to happen. Uh, that that general revelation ought to sort of you know set the table for the specific revelation. Uh, we we see this God, we learn about this God outside, 
And then we open up our Bibles and say, this is the same God. This is the, this is the same person speaking to us. And we ought to be able to recognize that. So in, an, in a sinless world, natural revelation, general revelation, would provide a perfect segue into the truth of Scripture. But instead, general revelation functions as a source of condemnation for all of us because we always pervert this general revelation that's described here in Romans as well. Verse, you know, they suppress the truth of God in wickedness in verse 18. Uh, they, uh, they, verse 21, they knew God, but they didn't respond properly. They didn't glorify him as God or give thanks to him. But, but exchanged, verse 23, the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like more mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Okay, they, verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and served the, cre- the, the creatures rather than the creator. Uh, they abandoned what they ought to do and, and, and take up things they ought not to do. So general revelation functions as a source of condemnation for all mankind because universally and uniformly, mankind perverts general revelation in such a way uh, that they are deserving of judgment and they know it. They know it. So it it serves to condemn. Okay, so that's general revelation. Uh, It should set the table for special revelation, but in fact doesn't. Okay. So, uh, we're at sort of a stopping point here, uh, but next week we'll, we'll, we'll continue on this discussion then with special revelation, uh, of which the Bible is the most visible form. There are other forms of special revelation. God spoke to the men of old in various ways, sometimes directly, sometimes with miracles, and so on and so forth. But primarily, what we have today is, is the Bible. And so that really sets the table then for our discussion of bibliology. Okay. It's also a You can keep it down over there. <laughs> trying to help this young married man out. <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> so any questions on what we talked about tonight? Is that, does all this follow make sense? How would you teach young kids today what an absolute is versus relative <laughs> they knew they are getting they more, all more relative the, today the way I parented absolute. they knew <laughs> <laughs> I mean yeah. Yeah, my dad gave us a special revelation <laughs> <laughs> no I mean yeah I mean if, if they're your own kids I mean that's yeah it's yeah. From start from the very beginning. I mean, like, they're you know, not under your control. They're, right. they're under somebody else's, right. like in school. Right, and that's and that's. And I think that's that's really one of the the the, the greatest obstacles of, of evangelism today. They they they've lost sight of absolute truth. They've lost sight of objective truth, uh, objective truth standards, and so to speak in those terms is foreign. Mm-hmm. So they have to they have to be taught what they ought to have picked up from mom and dad in their school, and we have to we have to start at the very beginning, which is which which makes which makes evangelism in some ways harder today than it than it was. 
It's because we have to reconstruct things that in, you know, generations past. Why'd you look at me like that? Well. (laughs) (laughs) You used to get trouble when you were in school as a kid, right? (laughs) You know what he's saying. The accepted categories about truth that were in the Bible were accepted when I went to school. Right. So they were, there was no difference. They, nobody was saying truth is relative, there aren't any absolutes, it's what you think. And I was not taught any of that when I went mm-hmm. to school, and now they are. So that's the conflict that you're talking about, Ken. Right. Yeah. I find that comment funny, though. You know, truth is is relative. Yeah. Well, is that relatively true? or <laughs> <laughs> It's relative except what I, the teacher, says. <laughs> Watch a few kids off a cliff and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Gravity pull them right down. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, we'll uh, see you next week then.